HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome, everyone, to a very special episode of Pizza Quest. This episode was recorded on location in Atlantic City during this year's Northeast Pizza and Pasta and Bakery Expo. Over the course of two days, I got the chance to interview a number of luminaries in the pizza and baking world, deliver educational presentations, and talk to the judges at both the pizza and the bagel competitions. We couldn't have covered this event without the help of our underwriters, and this episode was sponsored by Central Milling. Central Milling is one of the oldest flour mills in America, providing the finest quality flour and grains to homes and bakeries across the country. To learn more about Central Milling's retail and commercial lines of flour, please visit centralmilling.com. This episode features the recording from one of my three presentations at the Expo called Tinkering with Your Dough with guest panelist John Gudekanst. Enjoy. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming this morning. I'm Peter Reinhardt, and uh, this is my co-panelist, John Gudekanst, and we are we are your Tinkering with the Dough people today. I want a uh, couple quick housekeeping things. I want to mention to you that we are recording this session, uh, but not the, the show is not recording it. We're recording it for a podcast. So you guys are all going to be going national uh, once we, when we broadcast this. Now, we're not going out live, but Liam over here is producing the, <clears throat> the, the session, and he'll be with me all day today and tomorrow. We're going to be creating podcasts uh, throughout the, sh- the expo uh, and broadcasting them to folks, including interviews with a number of the pizza luminaries that are here at the show, uh, including John. We're hoping to get him over at the podcast table, which will be downstairs on the f- on the main floor uh, later on. But for the morning, we're going to record these information sessions, and uh, each of them, I think, are are going to be worthy enough to stand on their own as its own podcast show. So it'll be going out over the my podcast is called Pizza Quest. With Peter Reinhardt, it's uh, produced by the Heritage Radio Network, uh, HRN. is Now they've shortened it to HRN. Uh, Liam is one of the producers and engineers for them. Uh, coincidentally, coincides with the book. And if any of you are interested, I've got I've brought some books. If anyone wants to get signed copies, we can do that later. Um, and Pizza Quest is a collection of, uh, of re- pizza concepts developed by some of the top pizza makers in mainly North America, but there's a few internationals in there. Uh, and then I created home versions, you know, small, uh, small batch versions. I call them tribute pizzas. 
So like John has a, a wonderful recipe in there. It's a it's what it's a pear. It's a it's a scacciata, I think. Is it a uh-huh. pear? Um, yep. Blue cheese pear. Uh, Way on the back of the book. Yeah, and <laughs> but but the point is is that these were things that um, you know could be complicated. But what my job was was to simplify them. So I say that these guys are like the Beatles, and I'm like the Beatles tribute band that plays in the Marriott Hotel, you know, and plays their greatest hits. So we create greatest hits versions of some of these, you know, like 35 wonderful pizza ideas. So that's what this book's about. And uh, and John being one of the luminaries, I use as a term to, uh, because I don't know what house other than pizza geniuses, pizza experts. Uh, so let me just very briefly um, give you a quick background for some of you know John already, but let me just tell you a few highlights from his extensive bio here. It's a uh, uh, a full career of things, but l- l- this is what his bio says. Gypsy life. Yeah, and for those who are listening who don't know John, uh, John is an intense pizza obsessive, an author, a teacher, a blogger, a small businessman who thrives in culinary situations where innovation and originality are crucial. Uh, and that's how we, we connected over. I mean, we did an interview with John on Pizza Quest, and it's just his creativity is just brimming over, and I love it. Uh, I, I'm going to skip through this, but in uh, April of uh, 2000, the year 2000, after a full year as a culinary chef and prior career in, what, cryptology and all sorts of other things that he's done in, in the past, um, uh, he went all in on the pizza life and opened the high-volume Avalanche Pizza and Bakery in Athens, Ohio, which today creates over 120,000 pizzas a year. For 22 years, it has been voted the title Best Pizza in Athens and has been featured on the Food Network and in Food Arts, Edible Columbus, Restaurants and Institutions, National Geographic, Columbia Dispatch, and Pizza Today. John is also a regular contributor, columnist in Pizza Today magazine. Some of you may know him from there. Um, uh, In addition, in in continuing his own search for the perfect pizza, he graduated from the oldest pizza university in Italy – the uh, Scuola Italiano Pizzaioli. He's a monthly contributing editor and writer to Pizza Today magazine uh, and, uh, and has also published stories in Gastronomica, Alimentum Food Journals, and uh, his proudest achievement was to be selected in uh, the, uh, there's a, an annual anthology called Best Food Writing. So in the Best Food Writing of 2012, uh, he had an article uh, published, one of his articles was republished in that collection of Best Food Writing of that year. What was that article about? Uh, it was about finding truffles, going for competition in Italy, and, and Sorry. we thought we could just get, go to the grocery store and get truffles, and it turned into this mafia escapade in the mountains of uh, Emilia-Romagna, so it was kind of fun. The truffles, huh? So, so uh, was that, that was published in what, in, in uh, Gastronomica? Yes. So uh, Gastronomica, I don't know if any of you know, Gastronomica was, a f- was I don't think it exists anymore, I'm not no. sure if it does, fabulous, you know, uh, culinary, sociology, and you know, quarterly magazine of high quality writing. It was a big, it was a big honor for anyone to get published in that. And um, and its readership was relatively small because it wasn't like your, it wasn't popular mechanics. It was it was for people who were serious geeks about food. Yeah. And it was and so that so that that was a pretty cool thing. Mm-hmm. Um, even with all these major uh, commitments, John still finds finds time to travel, hike, and forage for pizza ingredients. And that's one of the part of the creativity. Is he's he's all constantly. Doing very innovative things at both at Avalanche and in, in your in your articles. So and he's got a whole bunch of awards and everything else. So I, I'm just that was sort of very brief um, uh, intro, just so we can get the ball rolling. So you know that uh, you know a little bit about his background. I'm uh, a, a culinary instructor 
and uh, baking instructor at Johnson & Wales University. I've been there for the last 25 years. And prior to that, uh, California Culinary Academy. And before that, I had my own bakery in California, in Santa Rosa, California, um, and came, kind of came into pizza through the bread world. As many people uh, have done today, uh, a lot of bake bakers have moved into pizza. A lot of pizzas, pizza makers have moved into baking, and there's a lot of crossover. So we'll be talking about that a little bit in my next session. For those of you who feel like coming over for that, it'll be across the hall and the, on the bread part of the expo. There's the combination of expos going on here: pizza, uh, pasta, and uh, artisan baking. Um, I'll be talking about things that new developments in the what I call the future of bread, where, where I think bread is going, which really these days you can see bread and pizza and almost inter, interchange them because there's so much overlap. So that's, you know, there's always something new and, and interesting to talk about. And so with that said, today's session, uh, we are recording it and there's no mic on the floor, but it's really dependent on all of you uh, to help us out by asking questions. Hopefully you're here because you're interested in tweaking your own dough. This is called tweaking your dough. We've done this presentation for a number of years and um, we usually uh, hear something every year. There's, a, there's always a question that can stump us. Uh, so we'll do our best to uh, share our knowledge with you. Um, John, did you want to make any introductory comments before we get going? Yeah, I'm honored to be here with Peter Wright. When he asked me to be on a panel, I'm like, oh yeah, I'll be on a panel. I'm thinking I'm the guy down at the end. And then he said, uh, so, it's, so it'll be you and me. We're the panel. I told my wife, she's like, are you crazy? <laughs> you better get your big BS thing out, John. <laughs> so any percentages or anything like that goes to Peter today, okay? Um, but I'm very, very happy. I started my pizzeria after reading American Pie. Really? I, I, I didn't know that. Loved that book. Chris Bianca was introduced to me <laughs> and with American Pie. So that's it's my hero. So yeah, that book came out uh, almost 20 years ago. And... Yep. Um, uh, and again, it was an extension of my bread work. I was like, I'd, I'd said pretty much everything I could think of about the science of bread making and the craft of bread making. And I said, well, what what else do I have to say? And uh, what else do I love to, to write about and eat? And uh, if, well, bread and pizza really, as I said, there's not, not much of a leap. Cause, uh, but at that time, back in like 2002 or three, when I was starting on that book, there wasn't much overlap. The pizza expos were happening, but it wasn't, mm -hmm. they were like, it was a much smaller event uh, some of you have probably been to the Vegas show, and it's huge now, right? There's like 10,000 people a day show up there, but um, but it was still a small community then, and and there was an artisan bread movement happening that had kind of was running a parallel track. Uh, 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 somebody who I got to know in the artisan bread side of my life was uh, Brian Spangler, who we were just uh, interacting with on the phone. He's he sometimes sits on this panel, and he's a regular you know contributor to the Pizza Quest podcast. And uh, Brian's got a pizzeria out in. Uh, Portland, Oregon, but he was an artisan bread baker then. Had a small little bakery on the side of a mountain, and uh, uh, and he decided to like move into the pizza sector, and that was a kind of a sign, a, a harbinger of what was to come. Because then all of a sudden we started to see this, the overlap of the knowledge that the bread bakers community, the bread bakers uh, um, guild of America, had brought a lot of new knowledge to the American bakers. Uh, that had to do with baking science, things that the European breadmasters knew that we didn't. And then suddenly that knowledge started to leap over into the pizza community and pizza makers were going, how can I, how can I take my pizza to the next level? And we always say, my, as a bed, bread baker, I always say, you start with the dough. The, the key is always with the crust. And so, and I'm, I'm guessing that's why a lot of you are here today. Yep. So um, 
if we start to say things that are that aren't clear concepts that might be familiar now to the bread baking community because we've been you know throwing them around for so many years but if you're not familiar with them don't hesitate to ask us to explain it in more depth some of the people who are listening to this uh, because this will once we air it uh which will probably go out in the next couple of weeks it'll live forever you know so we want to don't want to leave anyone who's listening behind also all right and with that said what i will do since there's no mic on the floor i will try to repeat your question uh, so that the radio audience can hear it as well all right so if anybody would like to get the ball rolling uh we will do our best to toss us up a couple softballs and we'll see if we can hit them out of the park Anybody want to give give it? Go ahead. Yeah, there's a question in the back. And say it loud. Sure. Uh, kind of a two-part question. First, uh, Italy, a lot of the small pizza shops, they don't have walk-in coolers. Do they do a long, cold ferment on their dough? Second question, um, foolproof formula for a quick, I'm going to make the dough today and use it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, so it's a two-part question. One was, in Italy, do... Um, since they don't have a lot of refrigeration and you know there's not a lot of space in the, in the operations, how do they do? Do they do long, slow fermentation or do they do faster fermentation? How do they handle their fermentation issues? And then the other was the question was if you need a dough today, is there a way to make a good dough in a, sh- in a short amount of time? Is that pretty much a summary of what your question is? Mm-hmm. All right, John. Do you how do you challenge, oh, yeah. deal with that challenge? Uh, a, a lot of the the Italian pizzaioli, they will use less yeast. And do a longer ferment uh, in in uh, just air. So it, it, instead of uh, a teaspoon for every pound, they would go half a teaspoon, uh, even a quarter teaspoon if they're if they really know that their climate. Uh, you know, depending if you're in Naples or if you're in Emilia Romagna, it, it, it all depends. But that long that long ferment is what they're looking for, especially with the double zero flour. Yeah, and, and and I think that flour also is not de- designed. I mean, it, it, people are doing long fermentations with the with the Italian style flours, but it's not necessarily designed for that mm-hmm. uh, because they're not looking for the same types of caramelization that American pizza lovers, you know, kind of reach for. Um, yeah, I was disappointed and, sometimes. I, I, yeah. As as a, a American and and being in French, you know, bakeries a lot. I was like, "Wow, look at the crust on these. There's no caramelization on this in in the bakeries." And uh, but the, the bread tasted wonderful. Well, the flour it's so sweet, and and you usually again so many factors are at play in fermentation. Uh, but the key to any good bread product, uh, at least a leavened bread product, is the fermentation is the is the magic you know that that transforms it from just a piece of clay into something that has depth and complexity. Uh, uh, and I'll. Th- Put this both as a part answer and also a question back to the audience. Uh, you know, we're we're finding that lots of small pizza makers, uh, whether it's in Italy or any other parts, many are moving into the natural fermentation or leaven. You know, naturally leavened uh, uh, category. So there are pizza makers over there that are not using commercial yeast, using starch, just like more and more pizzerias in the United States now are doing naturally fermented. Uh, uh, we'll call it, for lack of a better term, sourdough style pizzas. Um, or combinations of the two. How many of you in the audience, and in the audience right now we have about 50 or so people today, uh, how many of you use uh, natural leavening and fermentation in your in your operations? And and for those who are listening, the, the most of the people here are, for the most part, professional in the in the business in the in the pizza business. What is that true statement? Would is, are most of you in the pizza business? 
Yeah, getting nods. Yeah. Okay, so are any of you doing natural fermentation or are most of you using commercial yeast? How about raise your hand if it's uh, if anyone's doing natural fermentation? So just a couple. Oh, there's just, just a couple of you. So so this we're going to see. If I ask the same question next year, I have a feeling we're going to see two to three, four times more hands go up uh, because still the, the – this, the standard right now in America is commercial yeast. And as part of John's answer, you can control the amount of yeast you put in and slow fermentation down. You can still get a leavened product with half the amount of yeast than we're used to using, which goes back to part two of your question is how do you get a dough that can be ready to use in a shorter amount of time? And what are the trade-offs? How long, how do you do your fermentation, John? Uh, many different ways. I'm really getting into the Roman style, which is a long, it's a direct method like you guys are all used to with yeast, and then just a long fermentation time, and you get that beautiful airy crust, especially in the long pizzas. By that, long, how long uh, do you mean? Uh, about three feet pizza. I'll no, I mean, I mean, how long the time? Oh, <laughs> uh, 72 hours, 60 to 72 hours sometimes, so, so cold. So three to no in in cold temperatures, and I've been using uh, uh, Peter's uh, Panlon Sean recipe for my baguettes, which is it's beautiful. It's just beautiful. It's direct method, just with with uh, yeast. But the key is using ice cold water, ice 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 cold water. I put it in the freezer before I even mix it, and then I I run them. Chris knows my managing partner back there. I'll run them to the back and create forty to sixty baguettes on weekends and. Uh, it, it coaxes the uh, sugars out of the starch, and it, it has such a better flavor and such a better crust. And it's just uh, magical at f- about five, 450 degrees. So as, for, as far as the question having to do with same day, and we'll come back. I see that there's some comments on this, so we won't leave the subject yet. But uh, so how to make it happen faster. So a couple of ground rules in, you know, for baking, is, and, and they're fundamentals. I wouldn't say that they're laws. They're more like guidances, is that longer, slower fermentation will bring out more flavor in the dough uh, as long as you don't over-ferment your dough. And the way you can control <clears throat> the, th- the three things that are the, the critical factors are time, temperature, and the ingredients themselves. <clears throat> so certain flour is lends itself to shorter fermentations. It doesn't need as much to bring out the flavor. The ultimate, the ultimate goal, <clears throat> I knew the one thing I forgot to do is bring up a bottle of water. Uh, the, uh, the ultimate goal is to coax the most flavor out of your ingredients, out of your, your flour and your, your grain. And you do that through a combination of time and temperature. And you can manipulate the length of time and temperature. Thanks so much. Thanks. I appreciate it. Um, uh, I'm going to take a swallow of water. You can manip- manipulate time by controlling temperature. Yep. So for every 17 degrees Fahrenheit um, that you raise the fermentation, you know, zone, you can double the rate of fermentation. The yeast is very sensitive to that. So a dough that would typically take, let's say, two hours to double in size at room temperature. We'll say we'll say in a little proof box, let's say 80 degrees. If it takes two hours at 80 degrees. If you, if you reduce that temperature by 17 degrees, meaning bringing it down to, what, 63 degrees, you, it would take four hours. It would, it would take twice as long. If you want to increase the speed of fermentation, you raise the temperature to go up 17. And you don't have to always use 17, but every time you raise the temperature, it increases the rate of fermentation. Will that increase uh, or give you the same quality of flavor? Not necessarily, because it's not just the yeast that's creating flavor in your dough. 
there's uh, bacterial fermentation, not, that, which is also affected by temperature, and that creates more acidity and complexity that way. Um, there's enzyme activity. Uh, and so, again, going back to the Italian flowers, why do we not see as much uh, caramel, you know, uh, golden caramel uh, colors in that flower? Because it doesn't have as many enzymes. It doesn't have the malted barley flour that most American flowers have that add enzymatic activity that breaks starches apart and release the natural sugars that are in those starches that will then caramelize when they get to 325 degrees in the oven. So all these things, there's like all this this interaction and drama that's taking place that allows for almost a, what would you say, an, not, I wouldn't say infinite, but multitude number of variations in the, in the possibility. And so you change your flour, it could change the, uh, all the other parts of the factory. You change your temperature, it changes everything else. But the one thing we can control the most is time and temperature. And then after that is finding the flour that gives you the results that you want. Yeah, we call it emergency dough. When you run out of dough, you're so busy. And I think a lot of you guys have gone through that. Oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? One thing that helps in a pizzeria like that is a proofing cabinet, okay? Uh, You can control those temperatures like that as long as you don't go too high and be ready for pizzas in in an hour or so or whatever. And and going back to the enzyme activity, so if you feel like, okay, the enzymes need about 7 to 12 hours to at least do most of their work to create, to release some of those natural sugars. So if you want to speed that up because you have to in that circumstance, you could boost the enzymes by putting in a small amount of uh, diastatic malt powder. Diastatic meaning that the diastase enzymes are still active as opposed to non-diastatic malt, which is what they use in bagels, which gives you a lot of malty flavor, but no enzyme activity. Whereas diastatic, and all that stuff it's you can goopy, get. goopy malt, right? Yeah, it's like, the, yeah, it's like syrup. It's like yeah. molasses-y. And, uh, but but uh, all those are available, let's say, at beer making, you know, supply stores and things like that, or some of your suppliers have those, those ingredients. Uh, some companies like Central Milling, for instance, uh, can sell you malt. There are other, you know, uh, bakery supply companies that can sell diastatic and non-diastatic but it doesn't take much like a half a percentage of the weight of your flour would be like a big healthy vitamin pill shot of of malt of malted enzyme activity and the malt's coming from barley mainly because it's high in in these enzymes but there's plenty of other ways to to uh, get malted if you sprout any kind of flour even wheat it increases the enzyme activity so it's all these different tricks that bakers have learned over the years to, again, deal with the question of, okay, I've, I, I don't have as much time as I usually have. I can't do what John's doing it, and ferment my dough slowly at cold temperatures and, and stretch and fold it over a couple of days to keep it going. Uh, I need it sooner. Then there are a couple little tweaks that you could make, uh, and one of those options is a, a small shot of, of malt, of active malt. We call it diastatic. Uh, so I knew you had a comment. That was towards John. Uh, Uh-oh. So the question is, after he, after he mixes the dough, does he form it into a dough ball, or do you just mix it and let it bulk ferment? Is that yeah, the question? Another question. Okay, well, let's get... If you do bulk ferment it, how long do you let it stay on the, you know, like, at room temperature before you put it in the fridge? So how, I, how long is the bulk I, I fermentation? Do uh, we two? do both at, at my place. We ball up immediately for <clears> some, <throat> some pizzas, for some uh, long proofing stuff. I uh, usually, especially bread, bread-type pizzas things, uh, and we, we do get a lot of, that's not bread, or that's not pizza. 
like he was talking about before now because we're integrating toppings into breads. But uh, uh, both, I do both in 45 minutes usually. I, 45 minutes is enough in my place, yeah. I, you, a big bin is really good. A big plastic bin works well. I put it aside because we have zero room. We have 1,000 square feet. And... Uh, Yeah. So how? So if you're going to bulk ferment, how do you how how big of a piece do you put in? Yes. Yeah. That's why I'll, I'll you'll find me on my knees in my cooler, literally on the, the bottom of your cooler is the coldest place. Okay. The, it's the concrete underneath there that's really really cold. So I usually set it on on that. Okay. And I will go in there every uh, ten minutes and fold it. Just in in the bin, and the stretch and folding uh, partly helps to develop the strength, but it also equalizes yeah. the temperature. And so and so these are again, depending on your circumstances, you have not a lot of space. You've got to get pretty creative. Mm -hmm. If you have big facilities and lots of refrigeration, but remember, the bigger the piece of dough going in the refrigerator, the longer it's going to take to cool down. And, and until the dough gets down to forty degrees or below, there's going to be a lot of yeast activity. It's going to slow down as it gets cooler. So there are some situations where if you put a big piece of dough into a cooler, it could be a very cold box, but by the time that the whole dough cools down, it may have over-fermented by that point, which is what, another reason why a lot of people will ball their piece of doughs up early in the game because they, they want the dough to cool down faster because they, they're going to be holding it for a couple of days and they don't want it to ferment. They'd like it to ferment very, very slowly. And on that note, usually if I have these big blobs, we use uh, trays instead of dough boxes. Dough boxes hold in so much more heat. We'll take trays, oil the top, put saran wrap on them, pop them, and it, we, we use a technical term called uh, blob. The blob. <laughs> Very put a blob on it. It's, it's, you go half the side, you put it right down the middle of a sheet pan, a, a large sheet pan, because it will expand a little bit before it starts calming down in, in the cool. How many of yeah, you tend to do long, long fermentations before you start use the dough? Uh, only a, about 20% of the hands have gone up. And so the rest of you are doing making dough on the same day and using it that day? Or are you using it doing overnight? overnight? Most of you are overnighting. But you're doing it, you're overnighting the dough balls or the bulk dough? Dough balls, yeah. Because they, again, you have more control. It's all about control. Bakers and pastry chefs, you know, they're, we're control freaks. That's the, and that's how you become good at anything is you have to know what you can control and what you can't control. And pastry chefs are way worse than bakers when it comes to being obsessive, <laughs> you know, control freaks. But bakers are still, you know, partially obsessive control freaks too because you have to. Because that's, that's why what they're so mean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, more questions. Yes. It's changing. Yeah, you know, it's, it's more. It's growing more. I think the natural. Here's one of the trends. I'll be talking about this in the future of bread presentation. Is that that natural or sourdough style fermentation? Well, you sourdough is a shorthand term for it. Um, um, that trend is getting bigger and bigger exponentially every year. More and more people are moving into it. It's kind of like the final frontier of control freak baking, you know, because it's it's your biggest challenge. It's like walking a tightrope without a safety net underneath. And so people love it, but also it, the results, when properly managed, 
can yield flavors that you can't get with commercial yeast. Um, it can be any kind of yeah. It can be any kind of flour. Uh, and again, certain flours respond differently or better to that style of fermentation. But I mean, natural leavened baking has been around much longer than commercially yeasted baking. That commercial yeast is 150 years old, maybe, and it is a convenience for us to allow us to make a lot more product in a lot shorter amount of time. And the trade-offs are number one: one of the reasons why sourdough. Uh, is growing as a category is that the longer fermentation that it requires in order to get the maximum flavor also allows for the dough to become more digestible. It helps almost pre-digest the dough for you because of the acidity and the enzyme activity. All that stuff starts to break it down so that it's a lot easier. And there are people, it's anecdotal, but who will say, I can't eat yeasted products, but I can eat sourdough products. Why? I don't know why. And it's because for those particular people, their their sensitivity, let's say, to gluten or to the other issues in flour that may be not the gluten but something else, are mitigated by the longer fermentation. That's uh, the biggest question you'll get in Italy if you're competing in Italy is how long how long has your, your dough been fermenting? And it's because it's all about digestibility over there. You can have a big pizza over there and you don't feel that you ever, you ever go out and have a pizza and you're like, Oh God, that cheese is on my belly. No, that's not the cheese. It's the dough. It's just sitting on your belly. How, how so, many times have you heard someone say, I can't eat bread in America, but when I go to Italy, I can eat the bread. Yeah. Why is that? You know, it's, it's yeah. I hear it all the time and, and you don't know how much of it is real and how much of it is psychological, yeah, yeah. but I think it's, there's a lot of reality to it as well. And, and, and again, longer, slower fermentation. Yeah. Um, I work for a flour company, and what I've been finding out is I've been visiting some of the old schoolers that, that had like the 96 hour fermentation, but now they're taking second generation, third generation are coming in. Number one, skill level has been a big issue. Yeah. And, and secondly, uh, the patience, they just they want to. Faster, faster, faster. How could, what's a good way or, or, or at least with some reference? Yes. How can you avoid that, or where, where can you maybe go back and reference some material to help bring that bring that down? Bring. So you can still get the same characteristics, the same flavors. The same so, so the question is, how can you actually get those same properties, but in a less amount of time? Right. Because time is money too, you know. And uh, I, I found that. Uh, I I read one of his books and he he talks and we it's so funny I'm like oh I do the same thing uh, for natural fermentation he I throw a little kick I call it a kicker okay a little bit of yeast in when I know I'm not going to have as much time I put a little kicker I'll put old dough in and I learned that in France a lot of the baguette guys and we we busted in on a lot of bakeries in Paris when we were there and they they all had old dough just big ugly blob of old dough that they'll soaker like you call it a soaker soak it with some warm water and pop it in the mix yeah, because it's already been pre-fermented so it's putting a lot of flavor yeah. in but uh, so there are some tricks for, for that uh, using starters using sponges all those are all ways of manipulating time and temperature yeah, and, and mostly time mm-hmm. so the question is how can I get if, 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 if my if my father's dough takes 96 hours but I don't want to wait 96 hours and we're losing money in that 96 hours you know how can I how can I make more profit by without losing quality and can it be done and you know we did have a, a workshop here a couple of years ago where the I think the, the question was 
uh, is uh, the, the topic of the thing was, is 24 hours uh, enough? Is 36 hours too long? You know, it's like, where, where are the parameters? And, and back then, there weren't that many people doing 96-hour or 120-hour uh, fermentations. Uh, we started to see that. Ma Ma Massimiliano Saiva, yes. the, the Roman Pizza Academy, was doing like, you know, a five-day fermentation. Other people started to use it, and they started to feel that their regular regular, you know, American Neapolitan-style pizzas were responding well to that long fermentation. Um, and, uh, but then there are other people saying, you know, I only wait between 24 and 36 hours, and that's all I need to get the maximum flavor that I'm looking for. Um, and so there is no one rule that mm -hmm. governs that. There's experimentation. There's sometimes there is, there's the, uh, you know, sort of the, uh, uh, What's the word? We we become so locked into a, a method that we've come that worked that is not necessarily working for a logical reason, but it, psychologically or emotionally we feel connected to that method. So we don't want anyone to tamper with it or mess with it when somebody else can say, "But I can prove to you that I can get the same properties in 36 hours that you're getting in 96 hours," uh, and you don't want to hear it. Uh, but is there's a the term for that? Confirmation can, bias. It's called confirmation yeah. bias. You you know you, you <laughs> if you, if you're convinced. It doesn't matter, you know, what, what they hear. But but then on the other hand, because I'm, I'm not convinced that it takes 96 to 100 hours to, you know, or 120 hours to get the, the quality of pizza that Massimiliano gets from his pizza. But I'm not going to fight the fact that his pizzas are phenomenal. Some of you may have had them here in the past. I don't think he's here this year. He's moved back to uh, Barcelona or somewhere. But uh, his pizzas were fabulous. But... but uh, he also changed flowers. At that time, he was representing a flower company. I'm not sure which one. I don't know if it's yours or yours. It was an Italian flower company. And he, he said, this is, this is the flower that we use to make my pizzas. And then later on, he switched to, I think he may be working with Caputo now. I'm, I'm not sure he wasn't Caputo then. And, uh, and he's probably modified his recipe to conform to the way that that Caputo flower, you know, responds to his technique. The problem is they're not, they inherited these recipes. <clears throat> I call it the garbage can dough, where they put it in a garbage can, put it under the oven, then just chop off pieces, <laughs> put on, don't weigh it at all, and just comes out like. <laughs> Does it work? <laughs> it, it works if, for a lot it, of places. If I, it works, yeah. if it works, you're not going to want to. You know, and sometimes you don't want to hear that there's a better way to do it because it's if it's if it's working, it's not broke. Don't yeah. you know why fix it? And I'm so, afraid if I if I if I. Take your advice. It's gonna. I'm gonna lose quality, or, or I'm gonna lose my emotional connection. That's a. It's a real thing. The, our emotional connection to our techniques and our recipes, uh, and the way our, you know, our, our forebears taught us how to do it. Our grandma taught me how to do it this way. I'm not gonna mess with her sacred recipe. You know, those are real emotional things. And again, if it's working, the the bottom line is: is it working? You know, are you happy with it? Uh, and if you are happy, you don't have to change it just because somebody else says you don't need to do it that way. But if you want to know the science side of it and why, what the rationale for making those changes are, that knowledge is now available in a way that it wasn't available 20 and 30 and 40 years ago. Uh, and so you can apply it. And a lot of new people who are coming into the game are coming into the game, but through that kind of training. You went to a school, the, the Scuolo in, uh, in Italy to learn, and whatever their technique is, is, you know, God help you if you mess with their technique. Ooh, yeah. They're gonna teach you a certain way to do it, yep. and if you wanna be certified by them, you gotta follow that technique, even though somebody else could prove to them that there's a, another way to get there, right? Yep, I scored, I was proud to, I was scored the lowest. They said you are the lowest score of any, 
any best here. <laughs> Even lowest. Like, well, you guys took me out every night. Man. And they what pay, am I going to do? But they, but they gave you the certification anyway. Yes. <laughs> Stamp of approval. <laughs> well, I'm glad they were at least tolerant of your, yeah. of your inability to follow their precise directions. <laughs> Question in the back. So we're actually from your neck of the woods, Peter. We're from North Carolina. I love it. If you, so, so, yeah, yeah. He's so he's asking about how do we how do we balance out the humidity if we if you live in a place like North Carolina where it can be very humid, and, and many places are very humid. What about if you're in Florida? You know, humidity is a way of life. Um, how do you factor that in to your fermentation? Uh, well, my I'll, I'll go first, and then if if you want to th- throw you some comments, so. As a baker, I always felt like humidity was my friend, right? We want humidity because, uh, but also barometric pressure and other things that are like, you know, that go along with that, uh, because humidity helps to keep the dough moist and more pliable and flexible. It's not necessarily going to make it fat. The humidity is not what makes it rise faster. The temperature does, but uh, but humidity always seems to go hand in hand with, with, that, with temperature. And a barometric pressure can sometimes exert, you know, like a, a resistance against rising. So... Sometimes a dough will develop flavor without necessarily rising a lot because it hasn't developed a lot of carbon dioxide, but it has developed a lot of uh, sugar breakout during the through enzyme activity. So there's all sorts of things that can be a factor. <clears throat> as far as uh, controlling, you know, a, a dough that you're fermenting in North Carolina based on both temperature, ambient temperature, and humidity in the air might be different than you would ferment that dough if you were in you know, Ohio or someplace where, where you also have humidity, but, you know, you have cooler t- cooler uh, winters and, you know, maybe not as hot of the summer. I don't, you know, all those are, and, and from day to day, you're also having to factor, no matter where you live, if you're fermenting, you know, not in a controlled proof box, but in at, at ambient temperatures, you know, on a, on a speed rack or something like that, you're always having to adjust to that. O- on a warm day, um, your dough's going to rise faster. And, but... So, again, um, there's no one rule to answer your question. How do you control it? A lot of it is trial and error and becoming sensitive. The dough is going to teach you. That's the other kind of thing that we say to our students is, you know, let the dough tell you what it needs and and keep a record, keep a, uh, a notebook, you know, and chart it. And you you can typically, after, after a few months, you could probably get a – sort of an instructional guide for your team to say, listen, when the temperature goes above this, we're finding that we need, you know, less less fermentation time and dough's going to go faster. In fact, we can lose it if we if we wait too long. Uh, the dough can start to develop uh, sort of the, the, the taste of, of dead yeast or of too much alcohol or whatever. So you've, you've got to chart that stuff. Um, there are probably in some, you know, some baking science books – charts that you know will say for every so many degrees like i was saying before 17 degrees there's there's ways to to chart that but when temperatures are fluctuating and you don't have control devices like proof boxes that give you the same humidity day by day but if you do have a a proof box you usually set the humidity for somewhere between Mm -hmm. 65 to 75 percent humidity that's the ideal you want it to be kind of moist in there John, yeah, that's there. that's the the proofing cabinets are are just they're glorious. Uh, but I've felt that sometimes just doing dough in the middle of summer, a, a 
abusive heat and humidity. And before I can get even through the batch, I'm, I'm racing to get the stuff into the walk-in or not putting it in dough boxes or just putting plastic over it. Uh, and because I know I've got two days before I'm going to use it. So that's a, that's a, a, a tough, uh, you just have to watch your blood pressure so are, and get it, are you get saying it going. That with your dose, your, like your long fermentation dose, that you're doing all that at ambient temperature. You don't put it, you're not putting it in, in refrigeration or, or no, uh, chillers? No, I, I or? do put it in. Oh, you do? It's all goes in refrigeration. Oh, you use uh-huh. refrigeration, yeah. Because yeah. remember, you know, 100 years ago, nobody had refrigeration. Maybe, I don't know, but maybe, maybe it's 120 years ago. But whenever refrigeration came along, that was a technology change that was a game changer. And, and, it, and it opened up possibilities. But people that learned, that learned how to make bread or pizza without refrigeration didn't necessarily feel like they needed it because they had a system that worked. But refrigeration was a game changer. The cold, long, slow, cold fermentation wasn't possible uh, you know, before that came into existence. So a lot of these techniques that were developed in, in both the bread and pizza side are more recent innovations. And people were, by testing the limits... And by just saying, "What if? What if I tried this? Then would it, would it make a difference?" And sometimes it works, but you don't know. You're not sure why it works. So then you try to find, you know, the the, the the science behind it that explains why it worked, so that you can again control it better. I, I hope that's that wasn't a very precise answer to your question about how do we how do we respond to it. But it, some of it is that it's the, the answer. Sometimes is it depends. It depends on on your circumstances. But like like you were saying, sometimes just putting plastic. Right, you put it right on the dough. Right on the dough. Yeah. And how do you the keep the oil. plastic? You, so you the oil, oil the dough so that you can peel it off. But by putting it right on the dough, as opposed to covering a bin uh, with some air space in between, you're reducing the amount of air flow that's affecting that dough. Um, but I would, I, I think things like that, where you're in a situation where the, where there's fluctuation a lot, you have to you have to keep track rather than rather than say, okay, you just get a feel for it. And you can train some people to have a feel for it, but you can't train everybody. Yeah. Some people need very precise instructions. So it would be great to say, okay, these, this is what we've learned. This is what our dough has taught us, that on days that are around this temperature or this humidity, this is the kind of response we get. And, and we'll use that as a guideline. And then let those be guidelines, not necessarily rules and laws, but um, then it comes down to training your staff. And, and frankly, people can't get a feeling for anything unless they've done it a lot. They, mm-hmm. they just don't have it they 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 develop through practice okay more questions yes so we've had a lot of questions about traditional dough uh what about those that are a little bit more experimental or designer like trying to create uh like a a dough specifically for a dessert kind of application Mm -hmm. or uh something that's like an international fusion yeah So Anything. And the question was, how can you, for those who couldn't hear the question, is, uh, is uh, with, uh, how, can you, uh, how can you create unique and specific doughs with other ingredients than just the basic flour, water, salt, and yeast? Uh, and how do you develop that? And John, you've done a lot of that. Yeah, we, we do a lot of uh, French fougas. And uh, I, I basically, it's like a giant, what we used to call in hotels, is a giant chef's basket. It's a precursor to chopped, uh, where I'll get all this stuff and have to, really fast manipulate it in some way to incorporate it into dough so we do a direct method dough and we'll knead it into the 
be it olives, rosemary, and roasted garlic, or carrots and cherries and pistachio nuts, and, and we do that. And you get some wows out of it. Uh, you can also mix flowers. I, I love working with semolina and brioche. Brioche is a controlled dough that you could either have savory or sweet, and you can add white chocolate to it and stuff. But um, And semolina, this fine semolina that you get is like a cake-like texture. Yeah. And I love topping that as a focaccia, maybe with like in a focaccia barese, which is, has a little bit of mashed potatoes in it. And if you re-cook the tomatoes and at 160 for three hours or something they go on the focaccia and you don't get that uh, gum line underneath the tomatoes mm-hmm. it's just spectacular so, stuff like that I, cool. I, if i could summarize a little bit of what he was just saying and categorize it let's say is that one of the things that in culinary schools that we teach our students is that you have to understand the functionality of your ingredients that if you can learn how what the ingredients various functions are then you can deploy those functions, you know, in a product when you're creating something new and original. So, you know, sugar has a totally different function than flour, but flour is consistent of a certain amount of sugar, natural sugar that's in there, but it's, but, but it's more starch. But what is starch? Starch is ultimately sugar if you break the starch apart into its components. So, and then what, is, what does fat do? And, and what's the function of fat? And if the function of fat is, number one, you know, to enrich a dough, to make it more tender, to hold in more moisture, it has different functions, that it, more than just one. But once you know what those functions are, then are you limited as to what fat you can use? What if, you know, in the, in, for instance, in the pizza crust, we have one, one, one dough that was made with bacon fat, others that were made with chicken schmaltz. You know, those are all fats. Uh, uh, for a long time, lard was the fat of choice in, in American baking because it was, it was available, certainly down in the South, and, 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 it was very, and it's very functional. It's 100% fat. It's not, it's not like, um, it's not like um, butter or margarine, which is only 80% fat. So the, all these functions, you know, help to you to determine what you can and can't do. Brioche is, the, is mainly defined by the fat, use of butter as its fat as opposed to oil. But oil and butter can do the same functions, and there's a lot of those uh, that that actually perform better with with liquid oil, which is 100% fat. Uh, for instance, uh, babka. I found that my chocolate babka dough, which is uh, you know wonderful and rich dessert type bread, uh, works better with oil than it does with butter. And I don't miss the butter in that dough. I use sometimes we use a combination of both, but I don't miss it because there's so many other sweet and rich ingredients in the dough that I'd rather have the functionality of the vegetable oil. So, so uh, again, when you're being creative and trying to create things, understanding what the, the purpose of those ingredients that go in there are for the dough and what they contribute to the product itself, not just the dough, but the whole product, uh, will give you more, it will empower you. And again, we talk about control and, it's, and really what is control? It's power, you know, and that's what we all want is to be able to be, to be empowered to create the best possible products. Does that help? That yeah. okay. Powders help, too. I mean, you could do Powders. curry, powdered curry with onions and incorporate that into a bread. We do a curry fugaz, very popular, uh, especially with maple syrup and pizzas, blue pea flour powder. It makes it blue. A um, little shocking. You can use charcoal uh Charcoal, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, uh, he's well, cringing now. No, no, I'm not. I'm, no, because you can. That's The point is, once you understand what the ingredients can do, you can do almost anything with them. You yeah. you deploy them. And and that's when it starts to get really fun to be a you know creative cook. Yeah. But let me ask this question. How many of you, show of hands, how many of you in your operations have something comparable to a Hawaiian pizza? 
you know, pineapple with pineapple. Uh, about uh, 10%, 15% of the room raised their hand. Um, how many of you have gotten into arguments and debates with people over, you know, is it a, is it a sin to put pineapple on it? Is that not, you know, is that is that wrong? Is that a bad thing to do? You, some of you raise your hand because because that's a big, that's kind of one of those, you know, those uh, what would you call it, an inflection point in, in the pizza world. But yet, but yet the guy who who developed the Hawaiian pizza was not from Hawaii, right? The story of the Hawaiian pizza is that it came, by, it was invented by a guy in Canada who, really? who yeah, who, who uh, had a background in Asian cooking and... And in Asian cooking, the juxtaposition of of fruit and savory, sweet and savory, and things like that, was part of the palate of the food. And he said, Let, "I'd like to try that." You know, if and, and and again, it's how you define pizza. If you define pizza in the Neop- strict Neapolitan form, that pizza is, uh, you know, it's flour, water, salt, yeast, and it's Italian ingredients. It's tomatoes, and uh, uh, what is the, what's his name? Lucali says it's got to punch you in the face. You know, with this, uh, you know, with this particular. This is very defined. Yeah. Or is pizza just dough with something on it? Which Scott Weiner, who's in the next room talking right now, will say, you know, you can almost a lot of things can be called pizza if it's dough with something on it. If, if that's the the range that we're doing. So, and Wolfgang Puck proved this 40 years ago at Spago when uh, he started putting international style pizzas on the menu, which at, at, which later became the California Pizza Kitchen, where they said, look, if pizza's just dough with something on it, why not make it international? And in fact, by the way, doesn't every culture in the world have some variation of pizza of its own that they may not call pizza, but when you look at it in those terms, is like pizza. So a lot of it is how we determine it, and the bottom line is, how does it taste? Because the one who wins is the one who delivers the most flavor to their customers, a flavor that their customers love. So you, that argument, I love the, the, the Hawaiian pizza argument because it's, it, it can be, you can respond to it depending on your perspective. <laughs> and back to functionality of ingredients. There's a, there's a true culinary principle at work when you have the contrast of sweet and savory working together. And, and so you may not use pineapple to create that, but, uh, but John, you have the one in, in the book. That's a, it's got pears, mm-hmm. and it's got blue cheese, mm-hmm. and a few other you know, ingredients of the, and some herbs and things like that and spices. And, and that's what you're doing, basically. You're playing with the contrast and the impact of that contrast on your palate. And it all depends on also on, on the market we are in, okay? People are, they're educated now. There's cooking shows out. People just immerse themselves in these cooking shows. They're becoming experts. And uh, a lot of people, they're, you know, I, I get guys from the hills going, I, I want some of that, uh, that Chinese cabbage on my, that spicy Chinese. I'm like, you mean kimchi? Yeah, sure, we have that. And, uh, you know, put it on there. Put some mandarin oranges on there, too. You know, and people are, are expanding their, their palates. And that's, that's on all of you, you know, in, in business. You, you want to stay on that curve uh, of, you know, if you're getting your, uh, and this is uh, my, my thought, if you're getting your, your, stuff from new trends from the New York Times or Eater, you're probably five years behind, okay? So uh, we at Avalanche, we, we're like, wow, we did that seven years ago. Uh, we're, we're doing, we're on to new things now. So it's, it's pretty fun. But you can go broke being a visionary. 
You can. Yeah, totally. I know. <laughs> but, but, but we we all love to, you know, celebrate the ones who were like, who saw it coming before yeah. the wave hit. But by the time it hits, you know, they may be out of business. <laughs> they always say the first million's the hardest. So <laughs> and, the, and sometimes they say it's it's better to be second than to be first yes. with an idea. The one who came in second, who, who came on at second, made more money at it. You know, so I, I, I do product development and some of you probably do, you know, some consulting for other companies. And I do product development for a company that that makes frozen versions of, you know, entrees, vegetarian entrees. And I'll come to them sometimes with an idea and I say, this is this is like a wave that's about to hit the shore. Uh, and I think you guys should, you know, be out there with it first. And they go, no, no, we'll wait till one of the bigger guys does a version of it. Yeah. And then we'll just do a better version of it because, because we'll let them create the market for this thing. And that's their strat- That's their actual business strategy is to be second, but to do it better. Second mouse always gets the cheese. There you yeah. go. I, I heard that one. That's good. Yeah. A question over there. Do you think a New York style pie is superior? Do you think the right recipe is worse than New York style pie? A New York style pie is yeah. recipe. Do you think 48 to 72 hours later? So, so I would like to switch over to pasta because I don't recommend anything. The natural, huh? Well, we have a lot of uh, stats that we have. Like, the dough is different than the cups. So I'm always been like hesitant because I'm afraid of a starter or a foolish, like, insecurity. Like, how do I? Yeah, if you're going to innovate your doughs, right? If you're going to innovate your doughs, there's a risk factor there because not everybody gets it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a that's a good question. How many years are you selling? A lot. Wow. Okay. Uh, and mainly, you've been making it tr- the the convention. We'll call it conventional while using yeast and, and as your fermentation leavening. Yeah, and. Yeah, and now you'd like to see if you can tweak it and push it and get some new new flavor profiles. Took sugar out. Uh huh. Yeah. So so that's where you know. So he's asking uh, how can people um, have uh, feel less digestive issues? Feel feel that after they've eaten it, they they haven't had a gut bomb. Uh, and can it, how much of that can be a, a factor of the dough, the, the fermentation of the dough? And then how do you train? Second part is how do you train your staff to follow those procedures? Yeah, so there's terms like biga, pulis. These are pre-ferments. These are pre-fermented doughs that are added to a dough. To it, Basically, it, it, it ages the dough. Mm-hmm. A, a sponge is a is another Nate term for it. Bigas, Polishes are different terms. Some Italian, French. Uh, Polish means Polish. It actually is a technique that was developed by Polish bakers, a type of sponge that they took to the French. So the French called it. Okay, we're going to use the Polish method. They called it the Polish. So there's you know when you trace it back, you find that that uh, nobody actually invented anything. Everybody got it from somebody else. But the bo- bottom line is all of these things are trainable. Once you understand it yourself, but you can't train your staff until you first understand it. Uh, and John, you went to school to a school, one one of many schools, and there's a few here in the states that are teaching techniques. Uh, how much did you learn that affected the way you made your pizzas, and what are some of the things, the takeaways that you got by going to a school? Uh, a, a lot, but mostly on on our own. We've been we've just been pushing the limits. Uh, New York style pizzas. If you start out with a biga, it's probably the easiest thing to train. Just boom, boom, boom. 
uh, we did some consulting for, um, and I had some old school Italian guy and his New York pizza, he was putting condensed milk in there. And he could never answer why <laughs> I didn't know the difference. But the Beagle will get you a better crust. It'll get you a better bottom on it because the caramelization occurs better with the Beagle, uh, I think, than with the Poolish. The Poolish is, makes it a, a lighter, airy in, on the inside. Am I right? Or well, the, is that- there's, um, I'm, I'm not sure how much of it's been quantified, okay. but there are opinions that, that a, a, a wetter sponge, like a Poolish, which is 100% equal parts water and flour by weight, uh, is it's it's a sponge that also develops flavor, but that it can create um, less. It, it creates less acidity um, in, a, in in a shorter amount. You can get it to bubble up faster than a biga. A biga is basically a piece of old dough without any salt. It could just so you make a piece of dough, but that's about the same thick, the same you know. Uh, uh, texture as a regular piece of dough, but it doesn't have salt in it because that way you don't. You just put a small amount of yeast. The salt can affect and control yeast. Talk about function, it, and so by using no salt, you can get fermentation in a short amount of time, and you you're creating an aged piece of dough that when you put it into your final dough, you have now aged your dough from just being you know just off the mixer it's going to have properties of a dough that maybe it's already had six to eight hours of fermentation so it's another way to manipulate time by using a piece of old dough to control that's why when they say i do we just throw our old dough into the next batch that's a type of a biga it's a type of you know a pre-fermented dough that is but the problem is when you when each batch that has a different amount of old dough that goes in you lose a little bit of control and some people don't care about that because it still comes out good but if you want to have you know more precision, then you have to figure out you have a formula then, then that you use. So a big is just one of many techniques. A poolish is a sponge. It's easier in, in some regards because you can mix it with a spoon. You don't need a mixer to do it, and uh, and you need a very tiny little bit of yeast because there's no salt in it, so there's no resistance, and the it'll bubble up. Um, uh, you know, some people will put a tiny pinch of, of yeast in in that, leave it out overnight, come back the next day when they mix their dough. If you're, you're going back to the earlier question, if I need a dough on the same day, you know, how can I get a good tasting dough on this and, you know, with less fermentation? Chris Bianco doesn't overnight his doughs. Uh, uh, he was out in Phoenix, Arizona. He didn't have any refrigeration. He, he So he made his doughs the morning of and used them that night. And nobody complained about his doughs and he didn't require cold fermentation to get a killer dough. Uh, because he used a small amount of yeast, but uh, and and it was a, a pretty wet dough, so it it responded in you know quickly. It wasn't it wasn't a stiff dough. So all these are factors, but um, the whole part, again, I want to go back to this concept of functionality. The function of a, of a biga is not because so and so made it that way and showed me that biga seems to make a better piece. It, that's true, but the, but what, there's got to be a reason why it makes a better mm-hmm. dough. And the reason is the function of why it makes a better dough is is that you're aging, you're quantum aging your dough so that you can get the properties in you know six to twelve hours that it might normally take you twenty four to thirty six hours to get. That's its rationale. And, and, and as far as training goes, I would suggest, number one, first, you know, master it. I, one advice, piece of advice I give to anybody who's getting into ba- the baking game, whether it's pizza or bread, is consider joining the Bread Bakers Guild of America. It doesn't cost very much. Get a company membership if you can. Uh, ask them to provide you some of their past quarterly issues. Every issue of their, of their newsletter has tremendous technical uh, information and recipes, you know, uh, for all sorts of things. But that organization, more than any other in the United States over the last 30 years, is responsible for the improvement of bread 
and now I would say its impact on pizza of any single group that I know of because they brought the science and the techniques of the masters into the American mindset um, in a way that, you know, went beyond what we had, we had already come to on our own. And then from that, a lot of creative people took those ideas and said, okay, now I understand the functionality of all these, these techniques. Now what can I do with that? And how can I be creative? The way that John and, and other pizza makers are creating products that didn't exist before, um, the way that a chef on, on Master Chef or top, what do you call it, top Chef or uh, uh, what's the one, Iron Chef, and they, they, they give them a mystery basket of ingredients and they can create something because they know the functions of those ingredients and they can create something that was never seen before. And you don't necessarily have to do that in your business to create new things, but it gives you, if you're going to train your staff, then the best way to get them to understand it is you have to give them the why and not just the how. Mm-hmm. Here's the reason why we do this. Yeah. And, and, and so they always start with the why and, and the how will take care of itself. Yeah, New York style pizzas too. You know, cut a slice, show them what you have now, then show them what you have with a biga. You know, you get l- less point drip. Uh, it'll be a little, little crispier, especially if you're on the bricks. Are you guys on the screens or on bricks? Right on the bricks, okay. I hate to do this. We are at 10 o'clock. Uh, I have to go do another presentation. Um, Liam, you and I need to go over to a different room. Um, if, I'm going to be downstairs starting when the after this next presentation from about 12, 12.30 on. I'll be somewhere near where the pizza uh, competitions are being held. They're going to give me a table and a booth, and I'm going to be there doing podcasts throughout the rest of the day and then uh, and, and signing books. So if any of you are interested in this book, you know, come by. I'll sign them because I, don't, I can't. I'm going to have to go over to the other the other room. Come uh, see my keynote tomorrow. And then come see John. Uh, 11 yeah. o'clock, you'll see some really cool pizzas. And What are you speaking on tomorrow? You'll hate John? it if you hate food. Huh? What are you going to say? In your, what are you going to talk about in your keynote? What's uh, your... Just creativity in pizzas and breads. Thanks again to Central Milling for sponsoring this episode of Pizza Quest. To learn more about Central Milling's retail and commercial lines of flour, please visit centralmilling.com. That's it for this episode. If you want to hear more of our coverage from the Northeast Pizza and Pasta and Baking Expo, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Pizza Quest is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.